Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, guys, we'll go ahead and get started tonight. And uh, looking forward to uh, trying to get through this. The weather has desperately been trying to thwart this entire class, but it will not succeed. We are going to push forward. Tonight, I'm going to cover three big topics, but I promise I'm trying my best to just not make it so much of a fire hose, okay? I'm going to try to try to wind it back a little bit. Even though we're covering three topics, hopefully it's in ways that is really devotional. Uh, that's what I want it to be. I want it to be something, again, that's not just information, that you're really, you're able to chew on it um, like steak, but it's much more enjoyable than having to do that in, you know, eat a whole steak in seven minutes. I want you to enjoy it, okay? So that's what our goal is tonight. Hopefully we can accomplish it. Um, But I'm thankful to be able to, again, just talk about the Bible, talk about theology, look at what God is trying to teach us about who he is. And this is what we've been talking about, that God speaks, he speaks loudly, he speaks consistently, and he has been able to preserve the consistency of his word since it was spoken so many years ago. And we have that today to help inform us, to transform us, to give us ways in which we can be encouraged and convicted and moved and ultimately trained in righteousness. And I hope that this class continues to be a part of that. Uh, As we've looked at the Trinity, like what it means for God to be three persons, one being, right? When we look at the fact that the son took on flesh and his glory dwelt among us, like these things are big topics of, of what the Bible's trying to teach us about our creator. And tonight, what we're gonna talk about is anthropology, soteriology, and pneumatology. And I know those are big words, but I'm gonna explain them, okay? We're gonna unpack it together. And so don't get scared by the big words. The only reason they're big, is just because they're not based in English. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like hospital words. Everything's Greek and Latin, and that's kind of how these are too. These are based off of Greek words, and so that's what we got. Anthropology is the study of man. Soteriology is the study of salvation. And pneumatology is the study of the spirit. Okay, so that's really all we're talking about tonight. They're just fancy ways to make the big theologians feel better about themselves. All right, so I wanna pray for us, and then we're gonna jump into the study of man. Okay, so let's pray. Father God, you are holy and good, and we do pray, Father, that you would bless our time together, that you would just speak um, through me, um, but also to me, Father, as we all just enjoy your truth together. And Father, I pray that this night would just be a blessing, God, as we enjoy the fellowship of your church, but also the thing that unites us in your son, Jesus. And tonight, um, we are reminded, God, of of what he's accomplished and what's still being accomplished even to this very moment. And Lord, we love you so much. And uh, we just pray that you'd continue to, to give us ears to hear and eyes to see. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your spirit. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so first thing I want to do first is get you talking to me a little bit. Okay. And I know that some of you don't want to talk to me because you just, you don't like to talk in public in general. And it doesn't help that like we're technically recording it, but nobody can see you. Okay. So nobody knows you're talking. So I want you to talk to me a little bit. Here's, here's what I want to know is what are the things, what are the things that happened in your life in the different decades that like everybody did in those decades? So let me give you an example. Like when I was a kid, everybody had Nintendo cartridges. And when they didn't work, they'd blow in them. Even though that did absolutely nothing to make them work, we thought that, they, that it did. And we would blow in them and we'd put them in and then they would magically work somehow. Okay, things like that. Or like um, uh, Furby. Remember Furby, that, that 
that little stuffed electronic animal that everybody crazed for, over for a while or like pogs you remember pogs the things that like you you get a slammer and you'd pop it and try to get it to land on the right space so i want you to think about that and just tell me some things if you if you have something and tell me the decade too i was talking to mark about this and what the things he experienced he said because he grew up mostly in the 70s he said pop rocks were like all the rage in the 70s he said everyone was putting like cards on their bike to make it sound like a motorcycle as you rode around and he said also he remembers everybody getting the mcdonald's like cardboard and putting it in their cassette player to make it so that the cassette didn't bounce up and down in the car as they like were driving somewhere. So what do you got? What, what's your decade? What's your generation that you remember like this is a part of who we were? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious yes yes that's amazing uh-huh you know what's funny is i was talking to mark about something similar to that it was just like this the white the white uh static like kids don't even know what that is anymore you know what i mean like they literally have no idea it's like the corded phones they're like what why does this have a cord on it yeah Beanie Babies, that's right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I remember when McDonald's were, were, had those in the happy, the, the kids' meals, you know, happy meals. Yeah, I remember that. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's amazing. What else you got? Oh, yeah. You know, Mark actually mentioned this too. Which I didn't know this, that they would like play the, the national anthem at like six in the morning because there was nothing going on at night. And then, then cartoons would come on. I was like, what a weird thing. I like, that was. Okay, okay. That's hilarious. What else you got? Oregon Trail. I remember that. Going to the library. It's a sad game, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, that, that is true. That is so true. Yes, Oregon Trail. Yes. What else you got? Oh, yeah. You could, yes, exactly. You had to just walk very gently. Yeah, Walkman. What else? Oh, yeah, yeah. Tight roll jeans. <laughs> Those were also a thing too. Those were also a thing. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Well, it, my point in, in bringing all this up is that it's funny just that how things bring man together. Like we all have these recollections of these things in the past and it just, it's almost a nostalgia. You know, we just go back to those moments. Music does this really well as well. You know, when we hear a song, it just brings us back to these, to these moments that we remember and, uh, and the point is that there's, there's so much more in, that we have in common than that is different. And that is true, not just of these silly things, but also like the deepest, hardest things as well. You know, like when we talk about even the things that we have experienced, like we all have lost people at some point in our life. 
we have all, you know, have things that we feel like disqualify us in some way, that, that are failures or mistakes, you know, that we ultimately end up making. And this really is part of what the Bible is attempting to address, is that there is a shared human experience, but also a shared human condition. And in light of that condition, there needs to be something that happens because of it. But what I want to do is just unpack like what the Bible actually says about what it means to be human. One, because I think at some level, we have to know what we're actually moving towards. Like what were we before, before the sin and death and suffering entered this world, but also now who are we becoming in light of Christ and his death and resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That's kind of the questions that we're starting to ask. So anthropology is really all about this, the study of man. It's telling us about humanity. So what is being human? The first one is you are an image bearer. You are an image bearer. And if you open up your Bibles, if you have those or you open up your phones, either way, uh, this, I mean, really like everything that it, honestly, the whole book of Genesis in some ways is like anthropology because it's showing us this wide spectrum and scope of who humanity is and the beginnings, the origins, but also the fall, right? And it's longing for this, this, this fix. Um, and so if you even look at what it says in, in chapter one, verse 26, it says this, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So what I wanna point out from this is, again, we're gonna be in this chapter the, the beginning of Genesis lost. So if you want to turn there, you, it might be worth it. But the point is, he says, let us make mankind in our image, in our image. Now we've talked a little bit about this, but the reason part of why this is so fundamental is especially for us as Americans is because this idea of mankind being in, made in the image of God has really infiltrated even the ways in which our constitution was created. Like it's something that we see that every person has dignity and value and worth. But what I want to do is, while I, I, that is true, it's absolutely true, I want to unpack some of what is really going on here. Like, what, what is the image of God, right? It's not just that we have value. Like, what, is it, what does it actually mean when he says the image of God? And part of what, you know, we have even said is, like, since God's not physical, he's not a physical being, right? He's a spiritual being. It doesn't mean that God looks like me, Right? This is why God constantly said over and over, even throughout um, the Deuteronomy, like, don't make images of me. Because every single time you try to make an image of me, it's going to skew who I actually am. It's actually going to impact how you conceive of me and therefore how you worship me. You'll start to look at things or people in ways that should never, they should never be looked at in that way. I am not a physical thing. I'm a spiritual thing, Right? And so he says, don't make images of me. They will always end up skewing your worship. And so the point is, what is the image of God then? Like, what, is it, what does it actually mean to be made in the image of God? And this, honestly, we don't exactly know. Like, people have kind of given their best guesses about this throughout history. Um, Irenaeus is a really early church father. He talked about this. Augustine, if you've heard that name, early church father. Thomas Aquinas um, is, a, is from, you know, the medieval times and probably one of the greatest philosophers of all time um, has talked about this. Uh, we have, again, just people presently living who, are, who wrestle with what, it, what does this actually mean? Now, it doesn't mean we don't know at all. I think that people have a general like understand or at least some level of like, here's what we can be sure it probably includes, 
right? And that's why, of course, we get this idea of value and dignity, right? That at some level, every person is an image bearer. We all have this likeness to God in a specific way. And what I think is, you know, in light of Irenaeus, he says it's the reason or the will of man. Like, we, like obviously, we're different from animals because they might be alive, but they can't, they don't have rationality. We're different from rocks because obvious differences, right? And so he actually thinks it's the reason in our will and, and at the same time, our soul and our spirit, that we're spiritual. Uh, Augustine says something similar, but a little bit different. He says that the image of God that we're made in is memory, intellect, and will. Like that's what the image of God means, that we have the ability to have memory, intellect, and will. And Aquinas says it's our reason, it's our, the way that we can reason as human beings, which what that actually allows us to do is to love and know things. Like we can know something. We can know someone and we can love them. We can choose them. We can embrace them and be embraced. There's something specifically unique about that. To be honest, if I had to just like make a synthesis of all of these ideas, I think it's probably this, to know and love. To be in the image of God is to know and love. And it's not just to know and love people, but it's also to know and love the world around us, like everything. This is what God means when he says we're made in the image of God. Like we, are, we were made to know and love God and we were made to know and love each other and to use our faculties in all of the ways that this actually expresses itself at all times. We're made in the image of God. Um, Genesis, well, I should say this too, uh, two things. Um, we know this as well, that the image of God is something that everyone shares. One, because in Genesis 9, 6, somebody's killed and it, they said, you've actually killed someone who is an image bearer. And then in Genesis 5, it says Seth is born, that he is an image bearer. And then we even see um, like throughout the Old Testament or New Testament, this idea of being made in the image of God. And actually that's what God is actually trying to get us back to, is back into the image we were always created and destined to be a part of, that Jesus is trying to redefine. So this is kind of the image of God type of idea. Now this image, again, it, it has this idea of ruling and reigning as well, like, because it's not, it's to know and love, first off, to know and love is obviously to be with each other, but also to be with God's world. But it, therefore, it's also to enjoy everything around us. Like, and we'll get into this in a moment when we talk about um, the purpose of humanity. But the point is that like, it's a direct, it's not just who we are, I should say this. An image bearer is not just our identity individually. It's also what that means for how we live, how we express ourselves, to know and love, to, to move out outside of us. So does that make sense? Do you guys have any questions about that? Um, the next thing is that male, he created us male and female. So what does the Bible tell us about humanity? That there's male and female. Um, and it says that again in, in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. Now this is important. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so obviously this is a bigger conversation for us right now within our cultural moment, right? Where we actually do, um, this church takes the position that there really are biological distinctions and that those distinctions are meaningful, that they, that they mean something within the world um, that, and they also mean something in terms of the joy that we experience within them. And so this is a part of how God made us. He made us in these distinctions of male and female and both of those genders are distinct right? They're totally equal. They are totally valuable and worthy and dignified, but they are 
but they are separated in their roles and in the ways in which they, they complement one another. And this is one of the things that we believe scripture teaches, that, that uh, there's a man and a woman, and although they have both e- equality and dignity and value, they both also play specific roles that the other one can't. And part of that beauty is that they therefore work together. They are interdependent. They, they work and do things that, that ultimately lend themselves to God's creation and what he's doing in his world. So for instance, the way it describes um, the, like males usually is in terms of headship or provider, protector. But it's specifically, I think, in regards especially to how the male is ultimately bringing those things to bear upon um, his family and in the ways in which he's leading his family into uh, the, the image that God has called them to become, right? And for women, uh, there's more of this, a nurturer, a helper, right? That's when the woman is created from man, she's taken from his rib. And so, and God basically says, I'm creating this woman because <clears throat> ultimately I want her to help you. I want, you, you are simply not, you are incomplete on your own. And I'm going to create this woman to complete the whole image that ultimately begins to know and love both each other and everyone else around you. And it actually allows itself to become a sort of analogy to what God also is calling us from us in, in this intimate relationship and the ways in which those things come together. And so again, this is part of what the Bible tells us about humanity. Now, here's what this does not mean, because ultimately this teaching has also been abused at times, just like any teaching can be, right? This doesn't mean, again, that, there's, that males are superior, that there is some sort of of dignity that a male has that a woman doesn't. That is absolutely false. Both parties are totally equal in, bo- in, in every way, okay? They are worthy and, and valuable and known and loved by God and are both image bearers and both have unique gifts and properties that the other one simply does not have. This also doesn't mean that, that a husband can be authori- authoritarian, right? Like he's not a tyrant. He can't make a woman do something and she has to do it. That is not what this means. In fact, Ephesians 5 gives us a really beautiful picture of of what God is asking for in terms of this man and woman relationship. He's asking the man to do everything he possibly can, even at the cost of his own life, to present his bride to God. That is what his goal is. That is what his life is about, even at the very cost of himself. And so this headship, this leadership, this responsibility to lead the family is not to be self-serving, but instead to serve the other, to bring them into the goodness and glory and the enjoyment of God. That is the entire purpose of everything that it's trying to do. The other thing about this is that it does not expand, it, it doesn't expand to all men, Right? So it's not just saying all men are in charge of all women. That's absolutely not what it's saying. Okay? It's saying that within the covenant relationship of marriage, this is how this is defined. And it extends that into the church as well um, when we look at passages like um, 1 Corinthians 11 or uh, 1 Timothy 2. These are starting to talk about the actual dynamics of men and women in the church because it's like the family of God. It's like the household of God within that capacity. And so it doesn't expand outside of those in the same way. So here's what it also doesn't mean. It also doesn't mean women can't be in in leadership in those ways. Who was a judge in Israel? 
Deborah, right? She was a woman who was in, in charge in Israel. When we look at 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about women praying and prophesying. When we look at the people who were following Jesus and with him during the time that he was going throughout his ministry journey on, these, on that three years that he was doing that, he had a substantial amount of women with him. That's what, I don't know if you guys have seen The Chosen yet, but like that, that show actually shows that a little bit how women were with him the whole time. But the point is, again, not that, um, <clears throat> not that there's a specific distinction between um, men and women that makes one inferior or superior or anything like that, but that they do play certain roles that the other one can't do. And so even when we look at the apostles, we do recognize that like there were 12 apostles and they were men. And when they had to replace Judas in Acts, they considered two men um, that we hadn't even heard of up until that point. And one of them was decided by lot to become that new apostle. And so there is this headship model within the church and within the home. But we have to be very careful in terms of how we apply that because ultimately, like God wants to use the gifts and the purposes and the tasks and the responsibilities of every single person who is an image bearer and called to do things for him. And so this is a controversial topic even at our time, in our cultural moment. Not only because culture in so many ways um, has obliterated the distinctions of men and women to the point that it's a spectrum, right? And you can decide and pick and choose where you fall on that spectrum. But because now there's so many in the church that feel, uh, that feel a little bit guilty or compelled to say that women can do anything that men can do and men can do anything that women can do. And we have to just be careful, right? Because what we are trying to say is that like, there's a difference between men and women. We are trying to say that they're totally equal and worthy and valuable, but we are trying to say that like God gifted a woman to do things that I can't do and God gifted me to do things a woman can't do. And those things are not supposed to be burdens, but they're supposed to be in, like enjoyable, glorifying, great things that actually contribute to God's world in a beautiful and stunning way. And that is why God created Eve to begin with right? To come alongside Adam and to be able to be a part of the reproduction process, to move forward in the earth and care for it, steward it, cultivate it in all the ways he, he, he has called us to do. Now, I know, again, I know this is a big topic. So do you guys have any questions about that in particular? No questions that you feel comfortable asking right now? <laughs> all right. Well, don't forget Write your questions on the cards and we will answer those in two weeks, all right? Two weeks. Um, so if you do have questions about anything that we're talking about, those, those, those index cards are in front of you. Just write them on those cards, drop them in that black box and uh, we'll, get, we'll get to them. So, okay. <clears throat> uh, the other thing about, the hu about humanity is that we are a physical body. We're a physical body. And this is what 2 Corinthians 5.25 and Philippians 3.21 especially highlight. But the point why this is so important is because we're not just made to like be disembodied spirits that go to heaven, right? Like that's not what God's calling us to. And when, when God comes in all of his glory and goodness, it, he won't just dismiss and dispel all of the physical matter material around us, right? He's going to restore it back to that garden once more, back into a, a thriving city and into a place where we enjoy him. That's what Revelation 21 teaches us about the city of God and what it begins to consist of in that matter. <clears throat> the other thing is that we are a spiritual soul. Matthew, oh yeah, Yes. 
Did I get it wrong again? Did I put the wrong one? Dang it. What's that? <laughs> well, gotcha. Okay, let's see. <laughs> let's see. I might it might be Might be four twenty five. Stand by, stand by. Oh, you know what? Nope, that's not it either. Oh, wait. Okay, um, I'm not sure how I put, why I put 25. I'm not sure how they got there, but it is chapter five. It says, for we know that it is that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So he's, again, he's, he's right there. He's comparing our earthly bodies with our, essentially our heavenly house, our eternal house that ultimately we live in because of who God is. He says, meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we were in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this purpose is God who has given us a spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So Again, just talking about the body. And then it says, um, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So I'm not sure where I got the 25, but it is chapter five at least. So you can just cross out the 25 and just call it the whole chapter. Um, good question. Correct. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. That's correct. Yep. And that's, you know, um, a lot, what a lot of these passages even talks about. The, Paul talks about the perishable and being clothed with the imperishable. And that's really what we are in. We're in the, a perishable body. He talks about this in Romans 8 as well, when he talks about the fact that our bodies are dead, but the spirit is life and it's within us. And so even though our bodies are heading for a grave, our lives are heading for eternity and life in, pre, in the presence of God. And those will be given new bodies. And that's kind of what he's talking about here is this new experience of, with God. Um, I mean, I think that that's definitely a part of, well, I'll say this. My point even in pointing this out is to say that we all have physical bodies and we will have physical bodies. That the physical is actually part of like how God designed us. And it's not gonna change even after we die, the resurrected will have new bodies. And that's true for everybody. And so um, that is mostly to say that part of what makes us human is to have a body. Yeah, good question. Any other questions about that?
All right. So we're also a spiritual soul. Um, it talks about this a little bit in the passages there. Um, and uh, the biggest one I think that um, shows that is Matthew 10. I mean, all of them, all of them obviously show that. Uh, but it just talks about this idea that like, what is... What does it matter if you, if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? You know, like these types of passages and things that remind us that like there's something else within us. We're not just physical beings, that there's spiritual as well. There's a soul component. And that's again what people would say, this is a lot like the image of God in that capacity because we're thinking things, we're reasoning things. And it's that soul that allows us to, to really love and to reason and, and, and um, dialogue and all those different types of things. It's what enables that, that capacity. Um, any questions about that? Yes. I do think that's a big part. Say that again. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yes, I think that it's a part of it. I just wouldn't say it's all of it, right? Because when, when, when humanity is ultimately, like when it falls away from God and it sins and it's actually out of relationship with God at that point, it doesn't make it less a part of the image of God. Like what makes us the image of God, I think is that ability to know and love and to reason and, and will and, and you know, just begin to, to critically think, you know, in ways that nothing else in like around us can do. And that's why I want to be careful to say like that would be only, I think that's a part of what it means to be in the image of God, but I wouldn't say that that is what it means to be in the image of God. Otherwise we could have reason to kill somebody who's not a Christian, you know, um, because they would be, they would be more like an animal than they would be a, a man, you know? And I think that that's obviously going too far, like to say that, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the point is not necessarily that when you fall away from God that you lose the image of God, but that it becomes, it becomes distorted. It becomes warped in a way like a shattered mirror so that when you look into it, it no longer looks as it was intended to look. But when the spirit comes in, that is ultimately when um, transformation starts to begin. In fact, it says in 2 Corinthians 3, um, 18, it says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. And so it's this idea that the, the pieces of the mirror uh, are being actually put back together in a way that's making it crisp again where we can see ourselves in the ways in which we were always supposed to, if that makes sense.
Yeah, good questions. So what does the Bible tell us about the purpose of humanity? Um, I'm going to start moving through these quickly, but interrupt me if you still have questions, okay? First off, we were made to reproduce, all right? Praise God, all right? Genesis 26, uh, or Genesis 1:26 talks about this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that he may rule over the fish in the sea and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And in verse 28 says, and be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So we were supposed to reproduce, to enjoy the earth, to enjoy um, the, the, the woman or man that God has put with us in our life. We were called to rule, which again, you see from, from Genesis 1, 26 and from 1, 28, to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. And this again is not a tyrannical rule. We have to kind of take ourselves away from and out of the cultural I, like definitions of what it means to lead and rule. Because it's only when we start to adopt culture's definitions of those things that we start to misuse or misunderstand or even abuse them in the ways that they were not called to be, to be enjoyed. Like when, it, when God talks about rule, ruling and reigning, it's, it's talking about doing those things with him. Like he is the king and ultimately we are actually being with him and cultivating the world. We're, we're, we're tilling it, we're moving it, we're shaping it, we're using all of our creative gifts and abilities to, to create something really amazing and, and to, that we ourselves can enjoy uh, the fruit of, right? And so when we talk about ruling and reigning, it's not as in a bird, go there, right? It's like in a creating a space where every animal can, can flourish. And that is why, even from an environmental standpoint, like we're, we are called to, to love and care for the environment in the best ways we can. That is something that God places upon um, Christianity, because ultimately this is, that's what God made us for, right? To actually make this world into a place that was habitable for his people to enjoy and live and love and serve in. Um, he calls us to cultivate. We talked about that and what that means. He, talk, he calls us to glorify God. In, in Isaiah 43, 7, we see this, that like we are called to glorify God. And, and ultimately what Psalm 27 says is enjoy him forever. And Psalm 27, if you remember, it's that passage where, um, where it's talking about going into the temple. And it says, I just want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever right? I just want to behold the beauty of the Lord forever. And that's really the point is like being with God. Part of the purpose of man is not just to glorify God, but enjoy him forever. Um, and you may have heard that. That's from, um, that's how the Westminster Confession even talks about like the man's chief end in life is to simply get eyes on, on God and see and be taken back by his beauty, right? Any questions about that before I move on about the purpose of humanity? Yes, so reproduce, rule, cultivate, glorify God, enjoy him forever. Yep. Cultivate, glorify God, enjoy him forever. So what does the Bible tell us about the problem of humanity? And this again, we see in Genesis, right? After the fall takes place, God comes and he speaks with Adam and Eve and he begins to tell them. It says in verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. Um, with, pain, with painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. 
It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. And Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Um, So again, we see this here in terms of like the problem of humanity. When the fall happens, when sin and suffering and death enter the world through that taking of the tree, um, ultimately what we see is the image is distorted. That's the first one. The image of God is distorted. The image is distorted. They now are looking at a shattered mirror. They're not quite who God made them to be anymore. They've been perverted distorted, warped. And I love even the way that C.S. Lewis talks about it in um, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, that series. He talks about it in the first book called The Magician's Nephew. And what happens is basically in that book, um, Aslan's making a whole new world and he's singing it into existence. It's really a beautiful picture. But what happens is a boy comes and and he basically commits a sin, a similar sin. And what Aslan says is, this sin will ultimately morph and snowball into the worst things you could ever imagine. That you will be long and gone before you ever see the true force of what you've actually done. But he says, but don't worry, the worst of it will fall upon me. And that's really what we even see in this passage. We talked about this two weeks ago, that in this passage in 3.15, I believe it is, It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's the first messianic prophecy we have, the promise that looks forward to the savior. And that's the whole point. Eventually this curse that actually impacted us as image bearers will fall upon the savior. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. The next one is our gender distinctions become burdened. Our gender distinctions become burdened. So the very things that made our genders unique and beautiful and complementary to one another are now going to be fought with and, and there's gonna be strife within them. There's gonna be this natural defensiveness and really alienation. And at times we're going to, to fight against the things that God has created us for in the most beautiful ways. And that's why we see again, this, this birth pains are going to be, they're gonna be difficult, right? And the, the man's work is going to be hard. It's gonna be hard for him to really navigate and to be able to push into those. Last one is the souls are darkened. Um, Jeremiah seventeen four shows this well, that our hearts have become darkened. And Romans 3 is very, really very explicit when it comes to um, what, what's being talked about here. This idea that ultimately we all fall short of the glory of God, that we all sin, that no one is righteous, not even one. That's what it talks about. And it's quoting a Psalm there as well. Uh, but the point is that it's, taking, it's, it's helping us realize what sin has done. And then it talks about our bodies perishing. So now these bodies that God gave us, these physical things that were supposed to be a gift to us and the ways in which we enjoyed creation all around us are now perishable things. They're on their way to death. They're on their way to the grave. They simply cannot live for eternity like they were, called, like they were created for. And this is what we see again in Genesis 3.22, that they are ultimately banished from the garden at that point because God doesn't want them to live forever. If evil were to live forever in that way, it would morph again into just a snowball effect of just terrible evil that essentially he has to snuff out by 
ultimately allowing death to come. Romans 8.10 talks about this, that we're in this body of death, that although we're filled with the spirit of life when it comes in, our bodies are still ultimately destined for a grave. And 1 Corinthians 15.42, similar, similar, as it talks about this body. Our bodies are physical and they're perishing, okay? Um, and this really does lead us to the study of salvation, Okay, so like everything that we're talking about, the problems of humanity, the problems that have invaded our world, here's the point. Every single person experiences these things. Every single one of us does. This is the human condition. This is our shared experience. We all experience suffering. We all experience guilt or shame from from things that we have done. We all experience the bodies and their decay, their breakdown over time. And we all fight against these gender distinctions in one way or another. Now we're in a cultural moment again right now where we're seeing that heightened. Um, Just like every age has different sins that are fought against and heightened, that's one for us right now that is fought against and heightened but these are all a problem of humanity. And so it leads to this question, like who will save us? Who will save us from these bodies of death? Who will save us from this human condition, from the suffering, from the pain, from sin entering into the world? And this is where salvation comes into play. Now I have a definition here. It says salvation is being saved from sin and death and brought into the freedom of God's Trinitarian life. And here is why I want you to really come to grips with this definition. Because there's more to it than a get out of jail free card from hell. That's not what salvation means. And I think that a lot of us have probably grown up in churches. Um, I know like even sitting through our Discovering Christ Church class when we're talking to people about their different denominational backgrounds and things, where for a long time in, in the last probably century, I would say, is when it's become most um, popular is this idea that salvation is like, I'm good, I'm not going to hell, and so I'm good. Like, and that's it. And so the rest of my life is ultimately trying to make sure I can just keep up the good work so that I don't fall out of, he- I don't fall out of heaven before I die or, I get, or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. And that is a totally inaccurate way to view salvation. The whole point of what we need saving from and to is within the purpose and goodness and idea of God himself. God created you to live with him. Who is life? Who is goodness? Who is truth? Salvation is necessary because when we sinned, it was, we couldn't live with God. We were separated from him. That's why they had to leave the garden. That's why God had, had to always be with them, but at a distance. What salvation means is that we are no longer in bondage to sin and death. It's no longer our master, but it also means that we are no longer guilty or in fear of punishment because of what we have done. And this is where the big two ways that salvation manifests itself comes in. The first one is atonement, atonement. Atonement is in regards to the sin and guilt that needs to be put right. Okay, so here's what atonement means. At one meant. Really, that's really what it means. It's literally this idea of unification, reconciliation. At one meant. Both parties are coming together and they're becoming one again. 
at one moment. And the reason we can't do that is because ultimately we have sin and guilt that has separated us from God. And that sin and guilt means we deserve death. That's what it means. So we need salvation to atone for that, for that thing. The other thing is deliverance, okay? So again, Jesus is, or sin and, and death and Satan, like they are not our masters. Salvation frees us from that. And so here's where salvation really comes into play. The point of salvation is not just that we get to go to heaven someday. The point of salvation is that heaven has come into us. The presence of God dwells with us. We are not quite who we need to be, but now God is actually redeeming it right now, presently. Salvation is when the spirit comes into our life because of our faith and our belief and our repentance, our acknowledgement of our guilt and shame, and yet our, our setting it at the foot of the cross. And the spirit comes in and he starts to repair that mirror again. Salvation is already breaking out right now. It's already breaking out. And it will be consummated. It will be completed when Jesus comes. Or it will be completed if our body dies, but ultimately our soul is with Jesus until the moment he brings that resurrection about. That's what salvation is for. But salvation is already breaking into this moment. That's what really we've been trying to talk about with pathways. You don't have to wait for eternity to have a relationship with God. That is what Jesus has done. He has repaired it. He hasn't just forgiven your sin and called you good and given you a good out of jail free card. He's forgiven your sin and said, come be with me again. I wanna be with you. I wanna live with you. I wanna do life with you again. And I wanna bring the joy and the peace and the hope and the love that you tried to seek in everything else that was destructive and terrible. I have it for you and it's a well that will never run dry and it will always be here for you. But here's the thing about salvation that we also forget. It's great cost. It cost a significant moment in history for this to happen. Salvation is accomplished through substitution, which means God's life came into place of ours. And this is, these are the things that we're gonna talk about, but I wanna read this for you because um, I want you to feel in some ways jarred. I want you to remember, if even for this moment, the great cost that it took for this. Because one of the hardest things to keep in the forefront of our minds, and I don't think we're necessarily always supposed to feel bad, but I do think that without truly seeing the cost of sin, it's kind of like the parable that Jesus tells, right? When he talks about these two men who have, have, who have debts forgiven, but this one has had so much debt forgiven that they simply love more. They, they are more appreciative, more they have more gratitude. This is what I'm hoping to do by reading this. Now, um, this, is a, this is gonna be maybe a little bit funny. This is a paper I actually wrote in seminary, but it's very brief and it's about, it's really a ministry paper. And here's what it's about. What happened on the cross and whether we should talk about it in church. And it's very brief, so it's not gonna go too in depth. It won't take too long to read, but I do think it's worth sitting with for a moment. So if you would, just listen in. It is no secret that the adjective excruciating finds its origin in that of the practices of crucifixion. Crucifixion was a means of execution by the Roman Empire against those who posed a threat to the state. Crucifixion was painful on many fronts, and yet it was this kind of execution that God determined would be the mode of Jesus' death. Each gospel writer includes the details of this process, 
and in fact, seem to make it a focal point. And I don't want you to miss that. If you read all the gospels, about a quarter of them are, are just about the last three days of Jesus's life. This paper will seek to show the emotional, the physical and spiritual pain that Jesus suffered and how these qualities are indicative of the shame and humiliation that was necessary for our salvation. Crucifixion consisted of a long process of physical torment. It began with a scourging from a whip made of leather cords with small pieces of metal or bone. The victim was positioned so that each blow would land along their back, ribs, or buttocks, ripping skin and muscle so as to weaken the victim. We know this worked because Jesus had to be assisted in carrying his patibulum, which is that beam that would have been horizontal, by Simon of Cyrene in Mark 15. They were then marched to the site of crucifixion where they would be thrusted on their back upon the stipe, which is the vertical beam that they would put into the ground heightening the pain from prior scourging and to fast the victim upon the cross. The hands and feet were then tied or nailed. However, we know Jesus' hands and feet were nailed because he showed the disciples the wounds after his resurrection. Victims could have been left on the cross anywhere from three hours to four days. While the soldiers left Jesus on the cross, his pain would have intensified. The weight of his body would have put immense pressure on his lungs so that each breath had to be labored by lifting himself up on those nailed legs or pulling himself up by his nailed wrists, grinding his shredded back against a wooden beam in order to grab whatever breath he could, collapsing once more onto the weight of his body and aggravating the wounds in his wrists. Many would die by suffocation. In addition to these primary pains, there were secondary ones, animals and insects attempting to feed, cramps and pains from nerves and muscles, and simply the awkward positioning of the body suspended in midair. Simultaneous to these physical atrocities were the emotional ones. During the scourging, Jesus would have been stripped completely naked in addition to being mocked and scorned. A crown of thorns was forced onto his head along with a purple robe as a satire of his royalty. He died a death that was scandalous. Crucifixions were for slaves and criminals. In addition to this, his closest friends had both betrayed and deserted him. To Jews and Greeks alike, crucifixion was about as low and despised as one could get. It sent an unmistakable signal to everyone who watched. Not fit to live, not even human. Both physical and emotional pains were directly involved with the spiritual ones. The only saying reported by two evangelists, Matthew and Mark, while Jesus was on the cross is his cry of dereliction from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This death on the cross had already been pronounced by God to be one designated as a curse since he was hung on a tree. But this curse was amplified by the fact that he bore the sins of humanity. All of these pains are a direct result of the fact that no other mode of execution would have been commensurate with the extremity of humanity's condition under sin. Jesus was left feeling abandoned by God in order that we may be found by him. There is debate about whether the details of these sufferings should be shared because its gruesome details can be manipulative. The gospel writers didn't include the details, so should we? Fleming Rutledge believes that there is a time to do so. And in fact, that no one who who the evangelists were writing to would have needed the details. Everyone knew of the harshness of this execution. And the reality is that without fully comprehending what Christ has undergone on the cross, we are missing out on the ways in which God is revealing the magnitude of humanity's plight. Sin has disrupted and distorted all of creation and turned beauty into filth. What better way for humanity to comprehend this than to see God, who should be praised for incomparable beauty, reduced to the subjugation of a slave, 
This vision of Christ's crucifixion becomes a meaningful one for how one properly sees God and the story he is inviting us to. If the cross of Jesus shows us God and the story he is inviting us to, inviting us into, we must continue to rethink what religiosity should be. Rutledge points out the striking image of an electric chair and the damning connotations associated with it. And yet this image of an electric chair pales in comparison to that which we see in the cross. It would be ludicrous to see an electric chair as a charm on a necklace. And yet it should be even more so with the cross. We have made the cross into a religious symbol and have risked forgetting what it truly stands for. The cross is a vile instrument that is an offense to everyone who could believe a God would allow himself be put to death in this way. The physical, emotional, spiritual pain involved becomes an emphatic picture of who God is. And for those who believe, it is a great symbol of love and hope as we are reminded the cost of our salvation. We were bought at a price, a high price. Every single thing God has done is to take away the burden, the destructive force of what sin has done. The cross is the only way that we truly get a glimpse into what it means for the God of the universe to take on that burden himself. And the ways in which we see this The way Jesus accomplished these things in salvation is through penalty. The first one is through penalty. Isaiah 53 pretty much makes this pretty clear, which is one we're probably familiar with, but it really does make it pretty amazing that somebody could write this hundreds of years before it happened. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He bore our penalty. The thing that had to happen so that we could be at one with Christ. But he also was our victory, our victory. The cross in one of the most beautiful ways possible became actually in Christ's death, subverted the powers of sin and death. Like although God gave himself over to death, it was in this moment that he actually was able to defeat it forever. Colossians is a beautiful passage that depicts this well. It says, when you were dead in your, when you were, uh, let's see. Oh yeah, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. He's saying, don't let anyone judge you by what you do because we've already been judged by what Christ has done. And when he did this, this moment in time, he actually paraded all of the, the, the authorities, all the principalities, everyone, all the enemies of God that stood against him and thought that Jesus' death was a good thing, found out that it was the worst thing for them that could have possibly happened. His death actually brought about victory. 
And this is the kind of deliverance that we look at, when, even when we look at the, the book of Exodus, right? When, when God frees the people from Egypt, it's not necessarily saying he's dealing with their sin. He's dealing with their slavery. And that is what Christ has done in his victory. He has totally dismantled the powers of sin and death. There is literally nothing that now binds you to God. You might still feel like you have shackles on your ankles, but there are no chains. You are free in Christ. This is exactly what Paul is trying to get people to understand each and every moment that the image is being repaired. The mirror is being fixed. You're looking more and more beautiful by the day. And even though you might still fail, even though you might still get caught up in a mistake or whatever the case may be each and every day, it's still becoming beautiful and holy and good because it's already been paid for by Christ and his victory is still triumphing. It's still going to triumph over the worst parts of you. John 15, 13 shows us not only is Jesus' uh, salvation accomplished through him bearing our penalty and through him having victory, but also because it's exemplary, exemplary. It gives us an example to follow. It allows us to see clearly what it means to love, to truly Truly love. It says in John 15, 13. It says this. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Again, this death on the cross actually gives us an ethic. It gives us a posture. It gives us an example to follow. That, that our worst, like when things get terrible, our lives are still worth laying down for God to use them to accomplish things over and over again. I could tell you martyr story after martyr story. In fact, there's one called, about a saint called Telemachus. Have you ever heard that story? It's about a saint who was around 400 um, A.D., he was called, he heard God's voice from the mountains where he dwelt and he was a monk and he would pray and he heard God's voice and he told him to go to, to Rome. And so he made his way to Rome and he goes into the city and he just sees all these people like just walking through the streets all in the same direction. He doesn't quite know where they're going. And so he follows the crowd and he gets kind of wrapped up within it and all of a sudden, before he even knows it, he's being moved along with them into the Colosseum. And he's never been to this place before, but he takes his seat and all of a sudden he starts to see these gladiators coming out and they start to fight each other and murder each other. And every, all of the entire crowd is shouting and they're chanting and they love it. They love what they're seeing and Telemachus can't believe his eyes. These are image bearers destroying one another for profit and gain and status what's going on. And so he tries to get the crowd's attention, but they don't, they don't pay any attention to him. And so he goes closer down to the, to the Colosseum by, by the place that would have separated him from, from the place in which the battle was happening. And he starts to get their attention, but they don't listen to him. And so he finally jumps down into the ring and he starts to get people's attention. And a few people start to notice him, but most, most people just aren't paying attention to him. And then he goes into the gladiators and he starts pushing them away, trying to get them away from each other. And finally, everyone realizes he's trying to disrupt the match. And so they start chanting that he be killed, that he be put to death. And at that moment, he is. It says they picked up stones and they put him to death by stoning. And the emperor who saw this at the time was so moved, there was never another gladiatorial game again. Martyrdom, death, no longer defeats us as Christians. In fact, Tertullian says that 
The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. You wanna see the church grow? When we're on our knees, when we are even being killed for the sake of the gospel, it will spread like wildfire. That's exactly how we're sitting in this room right now. Not just because people sacrificed their life on the altar, but because our king did. Death subverts the powers of sin and death, and it always will be. And we have to allow that to push against us when what we wanna do is take up arms. We wanna fight, we wanna get in the battle, but the reality is the best way we can fight is to get on our knees and pray. And if somebody wants to come and take our life, so be it. But God's going to make a lot more flower bloom from that than they would ever expect it to become. This is what God does. And he shows us this over and over through his victory, through, through his example. God is also satisfied, the satisfaction, which we see through the book of Leviticus in general that ultimately when sin happens, there's a, there's a debt to be paid. There's something that has to be satisfied, an account of sorts. And we see this, God satisfies it. He pays the debt himself at the cost of himself. He pays the debt. There's representation, representation. Representation comes from Romans 5 through 6 when we look at how Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus represented the new humanity. He lived in the ways that we should have lived, but we never did. Representation. He, was allow, he allowed himself to be totally righteous and yet take our penalty upon himself. But because of that, we can be in him. Representation is all about the fact that although we failed, our savior did not. And so we are represented not by our own records, but by his. We are in him. When Christ sees us, it really sees, or when God sees us, it really sees Christ's record of righteousness. We're in him. And a ransom, a ransom is the last one. Mark 10, 45, especially, right? I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It's this idea, not only that um, this has to be purchased and paid for, but that it has to be purchased and paid for to somebody who has a rightful claim over us. Satan has a rightful claim over our lives because of who we are. He's the adversary, which means he's like a, 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 a plaintiff or a, not a plaintiff, but more of a lawyer, right? Somebody who's in court saying that dude has some things that he owes in light of what he's done. And God's saying, I've paid for it. It's done. He's our ransom. These are the things Jesus does. And so how do we experience salvation? The first thing is what Acts tells us, especially after Paul preaches the gospel to these people, they repent, they believe, they're baptized and they receive the Holy Spirit. They repent is the first one. And repentance is this turning. It's this 180 degree turn. I'm no longer walking toward my sin. Instead, I'm walking to God. I'm no longer walking towards death. I'm walking in life with the giver of life. They believed. They believed, which is more than just intellectual assent. It's more than just, I believe in this table. It's, I trust in God. I trust him. I have faith in him. Belief, faith, trust. Jesus, or James says, even the demons believe and they shudder. They know who God is, but their faith is not saving because they don't put their life into God's. They don't trust him in the same ways. They're not covered by the same blood and they don't want to be faith, living a life with God. 
not just from him. And they are baptized. They're baptized. Now, it's important here to recognize what baptism means, which you can read a little bit in those passages. But the point is that baptism is a covenant sign, right? So just like circumcision was the sign of the covenant with Abraham, that they were a part of the community of, of, of Jews at the time, just like the Sabbath was a covenant sign for the Mosaic covenant, that they were a part of that community and the promises, blessings, and curses that came along with it. Baptism is a covenant sign. When we're baptized, it says, I'm a part of the church. I'm a part of the community. I have publicly confessed who my allegiance is to, exclusively Jesus. My identity is in him and in him alone. It's this corporate idea, this corporate identity that we are now buried with Christ into a grave and lifted up into a resurrection. It's also used as sort of like a new birth, this new creation concept where you have died, but you have risen in Christ. And it's an important part of what it means, not just because um, I don't think there's anything magical in the water, right, that does something. But there is something meaningful that the Spirit uses. And I think that baptism is kind of like a marriage ceremony. It's like a marriage ceremony doesn't make me married to my wife. But man, is it one of the most beautiful demonstrations to every single person who is there for them to recognize who my promises are to, who my allegiance is to, who my commitment is to, so that they know how to keep me walking in that direction for the rest of my life. That's really what baptism is. It is the event, it is the ceremony by which every single person knows I am God's and he is mine. I am walking with him. And when you look at my life, I don't want you to see Elijah anymore. I want you to see a new creation that is living in light of who God is. And then lastly, receiving the Holy Spirit. Receiving the Holy Spirit. Which again, we see in Romans 8, Ephesians 1, 2 Corinthians 3, the Spirit totally changes every part of who our lives become. That image, that, that Spirit is what makes that image start to become unshattered when we look into the mirror. It helps us to see beauty all over again. Now, I'm not going to be able to make it through pneumatology. Well, I shouldn't be surprised, but... Do you guys have questions about what we've talked about thus far? No? Well, in that case, I'm going to try to do it anyways. All right. Well, here's the deal. I got all of these blanks to start with the letter C, except for the last one. I just couldn't come up with a word. So, but the first one is convicts. The spirit is a person who convicts. Now, I do want to specify, I say person because so many people think of the Holy Spirit just as a power. It's not a power. It's just not this, this animated, like, you know, big thing that God can just wield around. No, the Holy Spirit is a person, right? God is three persons, one being. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's not a power that we wield. It is a person that wields us. We are the instrument of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence within us and it's moving us forward. We are not moving it. We are not controlling it. It is now controlling us. We are no longer slaves of death and sin. We are slaves of righteousness. And it's good because righteousness is life. We are now chained to life. And that is a good Thing. And so the Spirit is a person who lives within us, takes up residence within us, and it convicts. Now, it convicts the whole world. Make no mistake about that. That is what John says to us. It convicts the whole world. It lets every single person know that they're not quite right with God. They're not quite right with the people around them. They know that they have some things, but most 
well, a lot of people will ultimately turn their head down, right? And then the Spirit is a person who counsels, right? He counsels. He gives us truth. He leads us into the places where we need to be. But sometimes we don't always even know what that looks like. Um, it's not just, and again, this teaching of truth, it's not just the truth about who God is. It's also the truth about where we should be, what we should be doing for him. So the clarifies, which is the next one, the Holy Spirit clarifies is this idea that the spiritual truth that we come to understand is still a result of the Spirit's work in our life. Now, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16, if I have time enough to do it, because um, it's really an important verse in regards to what we understand about what the Spirit's doing in our life. And so in 1 Corinthians 2, it says this, 6, we do, however, speak a message of the wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for him or for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. It's the spirit who allows us to understand spiritual things. It's the spirit that allows us to understand who God is and ultimately continue to put to death the things that we have in our life. Uh, so the Spirit clarifies. The Spirit creates. The Spirit creates. See, I did a pretty good job with these C's, right? The Spirit creates. And again, we see this in Romans 8. Romans 8 in general is very Trinitarian in terms of how we see God moving. When you look at Romans 8, you're going to see God all over the place. Um, and really, we see that first in the fact that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but the Spirit is the one applying the work. He's the one that's actually doing those types of things. And what he says is, I'm creating life in you. I'm ordering it. I'm making it what it needs to be. I'm create, it creates. The other thing that, that Romans shows us that the Spirit does is it connects, connects, right? What it says is, you are now a son of God. And not just you, but everyone who has the Spirit is part of the family of God. The Spirit actually connects not just me with God, but me to you. And so what the Spirit does is he's, he's basically making right all the relationships, not just within the world, but our relationship with the creator of the world. And it consummates, it consummates. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Now, I stretched a little bit with this one, but I had to get C, so I did it. Ephesians, though, is talking about being sealed with the Spirit, okay? It's this idea that once we have the Spirit, we are sealed in Christ. We are like literally, we have the Spirit and therefore it consummates our relationship with God. We are totally in a relationship with God. There's nothing now at this point that, that, that God's gonna say, oh, I don't know if they actually are in a relationship with me because the Spirit is testifying that we are. The Spirit is the seal that says, it's stamped, it's like a wax, you know, one of those wax things that you put on a letter, right? It's like a seal like that. It's like, no, when I see that seal, when I see the emblems involved, I know that that's from the king and that's what God sees when he looks at you. You are from the king. You are a part of the family of God. You have the living spirit within you. 
Romans 8, 26 through 27, it communicates. It communicates. And what it says in Romans 8, 26 through 27 is sometimes, have you ever prayed? Have you ever been praying to God or like wanted to pray to God? And you're like, I don't know what to pray for. I don't know what the will of God is in this circumstance. I don't know what to say to him. Romans 8, 26 through 27 says that even when you don't know the will of God, the spirit actually intercedes on your behalf with groans that words cannot express. So you know what that means? Even if you don't know what to say to God, that every time you attempt to, the spirit is there too, actually telling him the will of God, your heart, what is good, what is true. And every single time you pray, even when you don't have the words, the spirit is is interceding on your behalf. It's communicating to the father on your behalf, telling him exactly what he needs to know and hear to ultimately for you to, to be at rest in him and for also his purposes and work to be done in the world. The spirit communicates. Lastly, it equips. So there you go. That's it. If you guys can come up with a better C word, then let me know. But it equips. <clears throat> You're all thinking about it now. You're like, okay, what is it? <laughs> uh, it equips. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. These are, all, these are all lists of what the Spirit equips us to do in God's world. Okay? It gives us gifts. It gives us skills. It gives us things that we could do that the Spirit actually allows us to do, but also like skills us to do, right? And, and here's the most important part about it. It has nothing to do with us. It is not so that we are glorified. It is for the edification of the church and the blessing of the world and, the, and glory for God. That's what they're for. That's what they're for. All of these gifts that the spirit has within us. And here is really the point of what the spirit does. You know what the spirit, spirit does? It does full circle. It repairs the image that needs to be repaired. Like this, when we look at what does the Bible tell us about humanity? It repairs our image. It repairs our gender distinctions without, obliter- without obliterating them. It, 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 it repairs our physical body ultimately when we get new bodies because it guarantees that new body and it ultimately heals our soul because it's putting it back together again. The mirror is becoming fixed. And this again is what we read in that 2 Corinthians 3 verse. It's why it starts to become so powerful and why these three things by the providence of God, I suppose, I was able to cover all in one night because they all fit together so nice and neatly. The Spirit is repairing us as image bearers, not so that we can just be free from hell, but so that we can live with God right now. It's already happening. We're already walking with him in the garden. He's good. And when the day comes, whether we die or he comes, man, everything will be totally changed. Our bodies will be totally renewed and we will live with him again in the ways he always designed us to be. And he says, he's going, he's going to bring that to completion. That's what Philippians says. You will be brought to completion. It may not feel like that right now. You may feel like you're still beating yourself up every single day, but you've got something in you far more powerful that's going to help you overcome the worst parts of yourself. And one more story before I go, because this is what I think of when I think of the Holy Spirit. So I have three kids. My second son, his name's Dawson, and he's three years old. And so, you know, he's small and he's weak. But he always sees me and my son Keller playing 
t-ball. Like we'll be practicing t-ball in the yard, you know, and Keller will be hitting off the tee. And so Dawson will want to come and he'll want to try to hit off the tee. And so he goes up there and, you know, the bat is just too big for him, right? Like he, he brings the bat and he just tries to swing it, but he can't, he has no control over it. He doesn't hit the ball. He either goes over it or he hits the, the tee in general. He just can't do it. And even if he does hit the ball, it just drops right in front of him. And so what I'll do is I'll go and I'll grab his little hands and I'll get behind him and I'll grab those little hands and I'll wind up that bat and I'll just pop that ball and it'll go flying through the air. And it will just soar and the biggest little grin comes over his face because he's like, wow, did I hit the ball or did he hit the ball? Yes. That is what the spirit enables every single person in this room to do. You have no strength outside of the power of God, outside of the person of God indwelling who you are. But with the person and the power of God, you can do far more than you ever thought and imagined. So much so that even if your body becomes dead because of persecution or whatever else may come, God will make it live in in amazing ways. Not only because you'll be resurrected, but because of the fruit that will come from a life that is dedicated and surrendered to King Jesus. He is always going to make life from death when you have the spirit of life living in you. He is good. And so whatever thing that might be a mistake or a challenge or a failure or whatever the thing is that you're fighting with daily, whether it's just being a good parent or a spouse or whatever the case may be, a habit that you just got to break, you have something in you that has given you far more than you need to break that habit. It rose Jesus from the dead. And here's what I want you to make sure you know is it's not powerful simply because it rose Jesus from the dead. That's not just what makes it powerful. That obviously is what makes it very, very powerful. But the part of the reason that is so stunning is not just because something dead came back to life, but because that thing had the sin of the entire world on him. You are not too evil for God. You are nothing compared to what he did for Christ. He can move, he will move, you're becoming something. And I hope that this has helped you see what God designs you, what God wants you to be as we live in his world, as we cultivate the space and as we make every part of our life totally under his lordship and life-giving moment and, and activity. So let me pray for you and then we'll get out of here. If you guys do have questions, let me know. Let's pray. Father God, you are holy and good and true. And we pray that you would continue to do far more in us than we could ever imagine. Father, we pray that you would just move in us and just put to death the things that we hate. And God, bring to life the things that you love. And God, bring us joy when we have small victories. God, bring us, uh, bring us, bring us peace and, and just humility when, when the good things bring you glory. And God, may we continue to live in a world that might be still in the, in the midst of decay, but Father, uh, have these little outcroppings of eternity that are meeting in this room, that will meet all over the world on a Sunday morning, God, that are your church filled with your spirit and therefore a giant temple that house you, Father. Man, you are good and your plans are good and your word and your wisdom are good. And so Father, we just pray, we ask for more of it, for humility, for wisdom, for truth to continue to guide our lives as we commit them to you forever. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray. The power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, 
visit us online at cco.church.